Growing a business brings pressure. It's not easy to maintain momentum and still keep employees engaged. Fortunately, there's Insperity. Their scalable HR solutions help me with hiring, training, HR administration, and compliance while giving my employees competitive benefit options. When my people are able to thrive, my business can adapt and prosper. With Insperity, nothing seems impossible. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. So today we're going over two very odd cases, and whatever the title is for this episode, I'm going to apologize because it took me probably so long to think of, and it's probably just an awful title, Um, but you'll see why I couldn't figure out a title for this. Anyways, welcome to or welcome back to The Great Unsolved. My name is Alexis, and I like unsolved murders and disappearances so the weirder they are the better which we will definitely get into in this episode if you are new or if you just haven't followed us yet go follow us on twitter at great unsolved because at one point in the episode i will ask you to go there and look at some pictures that we've shared if you haven't followed us on instagram that is at the great unsolved and I don't mean to brag, but I think I'm doing pretty good at Instagram. <laughs> Not really. Um, so I've been trying to do like every day because I'm just, Instagram bores me. Okay, I'm not good at Instagram, but I've been doing okay so far. Twitter, on the other hand, I love Twitter. I sit on that all day and it is kind of problematic, but it's also pretty great. Our publishing timeline is every Wednesday at 3.30 a.m., So be sure to check us out every Wednesday at 3.30 a.m. So let's get into a promo from another true crime podcast, and then we will get right into the cases for today. So this promo is from Crimes Unsolved with TJ, and she kind of sent me a little like quote to go over. So here's that. It's just another day. That's what they all thought, too. It's just a walk to school, a trip to the gas station, a step outside. That was all it took for over 15,000 people to disappear without a trace from the United States. 60% of cases in the U.S. remain unsolved. Join my podcast, Crimes Unsolved with TJ, and help solve these cases one by one. And visit us online at crimesunsolvedtj.com to share the victim's stories. So this is the case of the Jane Doe head. Um, You'll see why I say that, but once again, I don't really know what to call this episode. So Jane Doe head is what we're going with. Not to be disrespectful or anything, it's just if I were to think of a name that encompasses this case, it would be quite long and that doesn't catch people's attention and I don't like long titles. So here we go. This happened on either December 12th or 14th in 2014. I was getting mixed dates as I was going through articles and research stuff and all that. So it was either December 12th or 14th of 2014, which was a little over six years ago. A teenage boy got off the bus, which I'm unsure if it was a school bus or a normal bus, 
kind of assuming it was a school bus because he got off in a rural area of Beaver County, Pennsylvania, presumably to go home. This was a rural area, but it was a small residential area as well, and it had a very small amount of traffic. Sometimes people would go through this area to avoid highways, I believe, but that's about all the traffic they got besides residential traffic. The boy must have been taking a shortcut or just wanting to explore the woods, which, you know, kids do. It's not suspicious that a teenage boy is in the woods. You could be just, like, hanging out. You could be building something. You could be smoking weed. I don't know. We've all spent time in the woods. It is what it is. We're not killing people out there. At least I hope none of us are. Anyways... He must have been wanting to explore the woods because what he discovered was about 30 feet away from the road in the woods. That's where he discovered a woman's severed head. Yeah, that's already really creepy, but it gets so much worse. You don't have any idea how creepy this gets yet. So right after this boy made this awful discovery, he called 911 and calmly stated, I found a human head, which... I know I said it's not weird for people to be in the woods, but calmly stating that is kind of confusing to me because I know if I was in that situation, I would be freaking out. I'd be like, oh no, are there people here cutting off people's heads? I would... There's no way I would be able to stay calm and call the police. Like, I would obviously call 911, but I would be very frantic. So, this woman's eyes were closed, but her mouth was wide open when police found her. Thinking that the rest of the body had to be somewhere close around the area, the police did extensive searches, but sadly, nothing came up. So, police were just left with a severed head after all this searching and looking for a body. It was estimated to have been there for about one to four weeks, which is a pretty big range of time. I know I've looked into, like, the timeline of decomposition because in my book I talk a lot about it and at one week like you're not talking much decomposition if you're in water maybe some skin slippage and stuff along those lines but at a month you're talking like parts of the body are like disappearing that's what's happening especially in the woods because there's animals around the woods and animals will eat anything so if there's a human head there, they're gonna gnaw it up or at least mess around with it. But this head had none of that done. It didn't seem like there was even any decomposition because the woman's face was still in almost perfect condition. This poor woman's head ended up being a Jane Doe after no one claimed to know the reconstruction of her face. Due to the almost perfect condition of the body, they were able to do like a really good reconstruction of her face, but no one recognized it. And four, no, six years later, no one still recognizes it. So she is still a Jane Doe to this day. Here's a little more information about this Jane Doe. She was estimated to be 50 to 80 years old. She had short gray hair or like partially gray hair. She had an older facial appearance. So you can find like the pictures of the reconstruction of her on our Twitter. 
as well as by searching severed head Jane Doe with bouncy ball eyes. That kind of gave a little insight into something else we're going to discuss, but that's what I searched after I heard about this case, and it pulled up the exact right case I was looking for. So the police consulted an anatomy professor by the name of Michelle Vitali, and she came to the conclusion that whoever severed the head had anatomical skill. Here's a quote from her. When we lifted the flap at the back of the neck, we could see that the whole purpose of that was to access key joint that would preserve both the head and the vertebral column. This is not anybody going with a kitchen knife or anything remotely like that. It was well done and it was placed perfectly. She was dismembered professionally. It was also discovered that Jane Doe's eyes were closed with the use of eye caps. So basically an eye cap is a round spiked sphere that are placed under the lids and they basically grab the eyelids keeping them closed. That sounded terrifying to me when I researched it and I refused to look up a picture because I don't really want to know what's going to be in my eye when I die. So this is something funeral directors generally use. Not just like anyone off the street really has these because we have no need for them. But obviously funeral directors have to keep the body's eyes closed for open caskets. So now we're getting into the creepier aspects of this case. When these eye caps were removed, I'm guessing to probably try and get like an eye color for the description, they found that her eyes had been removed as well. In their place were two red rubber bouncy balls. This is obviously not something funeral directors do. Yes, funeral directors will remove eyes, but they normally put in like professional like fake eyes in the place, not children's toys, unless you have a really like hack job funeral director and you are trying to get a discount or something. I don't know. Professional funeral directors would not use children's toys. Because of this, investigators began to think that it wasn't a professional but just like an odd person who, because remember how I said there was little to no decomposition? Well, that's because the head was perfectly embalmed, like professionally embalmed again. This is what first led investigators to think this was a professional who killed this woman, but the bouncy ball eyes just don't add up with that theory. Isotope testing was done on Jane Doe, and it was discovered that her last seven months she spent alive. She was either in eastern Ohio, southwest Pennsylvania, northern West Virginia, or western Maryland, northeast Pennsylvania, or eastern New York. This most likely means that she had moved three or four times in those last seven months. So the process of embalming made time of death no longer able to be like calculated and it also messed up the DNA so they had neither of these things to work with which I'm sure is one of the reasons Jane Doe is still a Jane Doe today. This also explains why there was no animal interference with the severed head in the woods though 
the smell from like the embalming fluids and stuff would make animals lose interest in this head. Somehow, foul play is not suspected in this Jane Doe's death. Um, because, yeah, I'm totally sure she just cut her own head off and put bouncy balls in her eyes and then hit her body. Because that's totally makes sense, right? An autopsy did show that her most likely cause of death was cardiac distress. As two medications used to treat irregular heart issues were found in her toxicology. However, it seems many police officers believe foul play was involved. One officer said this, Prove to me it's not a homicide. That she was alive and someone killed her and played with that body, including putting the red eyeballs in there. The police chief has also said that the head was found too far off the road to be there by accident. And there was no animal interference with the head because of the embalming fluids. What he meant by that was, like, animals couldn't have moved it further off the road. Due to their suspicions of a professional doing this, they decided to look into it, but sadly nothing turned up. No funeral homes or cemeteries had a record of a head going missing or looking like Jane Doe. There are also no like definitive suspects in this case, but police... Well, some police say they know what happened. Body brokers. These are people who sell body parts on the black market, which would explain why there was only a head to be found. They think this because they stated it was a very neat surgical dissection. In 2010, an airline employee found 40 severed heads in plastic containers. In Texas, a full cadaver was on the side of the road when it slipped off the truck. And a Detroit-based body broker would just stack human heads on top of each other without a barrier. So it is something that happens regularly. And these are body parts that are very difficult to trace back to where they came from. However, I still don't think it explains the bouncy balls. Okay, so if you haven't listened to a lot of the episodes, I just want to let you know. I really love Reddit true crime-like things. I think, yes, it might not be, like, the most reliable place to get information, but you get a lot of different views. And I'm someone who really likes to hear theories and really likes to see how other people interpreted evidence. So, of course, I looked up this very strange case on Reddit. And as I was going through the comments, I found one by... S. Masharella that was posted about a year ago. This is what they said. I'm a funeral director and embalmer. I remember flipping through some older funeral association magazines and read an article about a woman's head being stolen from a funeral home in Quebec. I think this was the late 90s though, but I'll try to look it up to be sure. So they did find it and they linked it and then they... It turns out it was in 2005, not the late 90s. So yeah, it was still nine years before the severed head Jane Doe case came around. But when I was going through like a few more things, it got even weirder. A lot of people were saying, of course, call the police. But 
a lot of people were saying this is a really weird coincidence. I want to read another comment that was just in right after the comment I read before. And this is from... I don't know. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Just, okay. Here's what it says. Just a thought. If she had cancer... Oh, yeah. So the woman whose head was stolen died of cancer in 2005. But listen to this. If she had cancer, both the Cleveland Clinic and the UVW Cancer Institute are world-famous treatment centers that are located in areas that would be consistent with the forensic evidence, which she means the isotope testing. Both often have new treatments that aren't available anywhere else. When they debut these new treatments... They are sometimes free for certain types of patients because they want a large treatment group to get data on how well they work. She could have also qualified for a study on a new type of treatment. The medications that they found in her system can definitely be used to treat heart failure, but are also commonly used for sedation during surgical procedures. Other drugs used for sedation, such as midazolam, and something else, are rapidly metabolized and may not have been present. So this person is stating that her isotopes obviously don't line up with Quebec, but they line up with two very large cancer institutes, and this woman died of cancer. So that definitely could have been a factor. I don't think anyone's ever tried to ask her family if she had been receiving cancer treatment around this area, but it was very interesting. Anyways, someone later found her obituary and mirrored the picture so that it, like her face was at the same angle as the reconstruction. Now, before I even looked at the pictures, I was reading the comments and they're like, oh no, that doesn't look like her. It doesn't look like her, blah, blah, blah. But looking at it, it honestly does. The picture of the reconstruction looks skinnier, but that could have been because the picture was older before she was suffering badly from cancer. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that could have changed, such as wrinkles, that they just couldn't get on the reconstruction as well. But it seems her eyelids... She kind of has, oh gosh, I forgot what they're called. Not, she is hooded. She has hooded eyelids in the reconstruction, and it seems she also does in the picture. She has the right creases around her mouth, and her nose seems fairly similar. The only thing that looks kind of different is her eyebrows, but I believe in the picture from her obituary, they are drawn on. At least that's what it looks like. So she could have just stopped like shaving her eyebrows or plucking her eyebrows in the time before her death. And that's why her eyebrows look shaggier. It just, it seems like a little too much of a coincidence to me to have this lady's head stolen and have her bear an oddly good resemblance to the reconstruction of this Jane Doe. Anyways, the only hope there is now is that a dentist who worked on her comes forward. 
because Jane Doe's autopsy shown very extensive dental work on literally every tooth. So hopefully at some point someone comes forward and says, yes, I've worked on this patient. Her name is this. Okay, so with that no resolution case, we are moving on to the second case of this episode. And this one is also very odd. So I don't think I mentioned at the beginning, but I was kind of scrolling through like just odd, weird, unsolved cases. And I got to like a few lists of a bunch of them. And the one we just talked about spiked my interest a lot. And this one did. So this is the case of Jonathan Luna. There is discrepancy on if this was a suicide or a murder. I am definitely leaning on the side of murder because it just it doesn't seem like suicide. If you've studied a lot in true crime, you'll get what I mean when I say it doesn't seem like suicide. So Jonathan Paul Luna was an American lawyer and he lived around Baltimore, Maryland. He was actually an assistant United States attorney. I'm not sure what that is, honestly, but that's what he was. So he was born October 21st, oh my goodness, I can't talk now, 1965. And he actually grew up in a housing project near Yankee Stadium, which obviously New York City. So his father was Filipino and his mother was African-American. And it seems like his family was at least semi-poor as he grew up, which in New York, that's totally like so common, especially for people that immigrate or anything like that. He ended up receiving his undergraduate degree from Fordham University. And weird little tidbit here. So in the book I wrote, one of the one of the more interesting cases actually took well it was a guy that also graduated from Fordham University and so that was kind of weird to me. He then continued his studies at the University of North Carolina School of Law and he had a roommate and he worked in Washington DC from 1993 to 1994. So he then served as a prosecutor in Brooklyn before moving to Baltimore, Maryland and getting his assistant United States attorney job. He was also married to an obstetrician and they had two kids. So his life was pretty normal. Like he was a successful lawyer. He grew up from a poor family and succeeded and so did his wife and they had kids and that's pretty much like the whole story there. So at 11.38 p.m. the night he died, which was December 4th, 2003, if I forgot to mention that, he left the Baltimore courthouse and went northeast on I-95. They know this because he used his, like, pass, like, here in Wisconsin we don't have them, but in Illinois they're called, like, I-passes, so you don't have to pay, like, stop and pay the tolls. You just drive through and it kind of like scans it from your car. Anyways, he used that 
but he didn't use it all the way to where he was eventually found. He eventually switched to buying, like, the tickets. Like, he stopped and paid for the tolls, which is kind of odd because the whole reason of buying one of those passes is so you don't have to stop and pay for the tolls. So why was he now doing that? Was he trying to, like, hide his path or throw someone off? That's really all I can think of. At 12.57 a.m. Oh, sorry. We were talking about December 3rd, I believe, before. Now we're talking about December 4th of 2003. I didn't realize it was, like, that late in the day. So at 12.57 a.m., he withdraw $200 from his bank account from the ATM at JFK Plaza Service Center near Newark, Delaware. At 2.47 a.m., he crossed the Delaware River Toll Bridge. And at 3.20 a.m., his debit card bought gas at the Sunoco King of Prussia Service Plaza. So he's, like, just going on a midnight drive by himself. Well, like, 11.30 to, like, 3 a.m. by himself. And it even goes past 3 a.m. But that seems odd to me in the first place. Like, he has a wife and two kids at home. Why is he just out driving around for no reason, you know? I don't know. That kind of struck me as odd. But maybe he did this normally. I don't really know what to say about it. At 4.04 a.m., his car exited the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the Reading-Lancaster interchange. So this toll ticket had a spot of his blood suggesting that at like this point he was already injured with injuries the police would eventually find him with. He then parked his car at the back of Sensing and Weaver Well Drilling Company. This was the address was 1439 Dry Tavern Road, Denver, Pennsylvania. And then it was later driven to the creek. So, obviously, this is not where he lives. He lives in Baltimore. He drove to Denver, Pennsylvania for an unknown reason. And a reason has never been found. Like, he had no reason to be around there. Which is just... It adds even more confusingness to this case. So at 5 a.m., the first employee of Sensing and Weaver arrived, and then 5.30, they noticed the car. So they saw it with its lights off in the front end into the stream. So I guess, like, it was either driven into the creek, like they said, or it, like, just, it went down that way. I don't know. But the front end was in the creek. There was blood smeared over the driver's door and the left side of like the front of the car Jonathan Luna was face down in the stream under the car engine he was wearing a suit and a black overcoat and he still had his like court ID like he didn't even take that off from around his neck in his very long drive there was a pool of blood on the rear seat floor and this is where we find out what the cause of death was actually it wasn't the cause of death but he was stabbed 36 times with his own pocket knife. These stab wounds were around the chest and neck, and it seemed he also had a head injury, but his ultimate cause of death was drowning, as he was found 
face down in the creek. So maybe he was stabbed a lot and then he fell out of the car and he just couldn't get himself back up because he was in such an injured state. There are no suspects or known motive for murder. Like he wasn't, I don't think he was a huge like prosecuting attorney. He wasn't throwing people in jail and stuff. So there wasn't a huge target on his head like there are for some attorneys. However, federal authorities were leaning towards calling it a suicide and believe he was alone for the entire drive and the entire time he died. But there were two coroners that ruled it a homicide. So I wanted to say that like, he did withdraw that $200 and it was found scattered around the car, like inside the car, but around the inside of the car when his body was found. So nothing had been stolen, which once again counts out another motive for murder. And it just, it seemed like he was alone the whole time. So some evidence collected during this investigation was another blood type and a partial print, which means like there would have been another person around because you can't have two blood types and you can't have two sets of fingerprints, obviously. There was also some grainy footage from near the time of like when he went to the gas station and bought gas, which I don't know what it shows, but like the articles just said, there was some grainy footage. So maybe he had an interaction with someone or maybe it looked like there was someone else in his car. Maybe, I don't know. The thing I'm thinking of is maybe it was an affair because that would make sense why he didn't want anyone to know where he was going and why he started buying toll tickets instead of just using his pass. But it's generally men are a lot stronger than women. So for a woman to be able to stab like a full-grown man 36 times, it just doesn't seem that plausible. Like if it was like me against my boyfriend and I was trying to stab him, there's no way I would probably even get like one stab wound in. Make it like a partial one, but like 36 is a lot. And it didn't even like kill him. So after that, there still would have been some fighting going on. So this investigation remains open, even though the FBI thinks it's a suicide and the coroners think it's a homicide. No one's been able to rule conclusively. There is a reward of a hundred thousand for information leading to a conviction. So The suicide shows that there was no substantial, like, defense wounds on his hand. And they think that the wounds that are there are called hesitation wounds. So, like, suicide victims aren't always, like, completely ready to go for it. So, they may have some wounds that indicate they took a little bit of time to think it through, and then they eventually just did it. Some suggested that his motives for suicide would have been he had to take a polygraph test concerning $36,000 that disappeared from a bank robbery case he had prosecuted. And there was a charge card which his wife, Angela, did not know about. His name was also on a dating site 
and he had $25,000 credit card debt. There is also a like accidental suicide theory that Luna was fabricating a kidnapping and attack and that he had ended up going too far and obviously killing himself. So when I first started reading about this, I thought this Jonathan Luna guy was like, oh, he's a lawyer, he's a family man, like there's nothing wrong here. But then we look at the $36,000 missing, a secret charge card, and a secret credit card debt, and that kind of, it doesn't really prove anything, but it is just odd. So the Lancaster County Coroner, who performed the autopsy, said that Luna's death was a homicide by drowning. Luna had left his glasses, which he needed to drive, on his desk at work. So how did he drive, like, this many hours without his glasses? It just doesn't seem very plausible. Now, I don't know how bad his vision was. Like, could he not see at all? Could he not drive at all? I don't know. But he obviously needed his glasses to drive. He also left his cell phone on his desk, which kind of means... Like, it kind of seems like he left in a rush. Maybe someone was pushing him out the door, or he had something to worry about, and something lured him out there. I don't know. People can make fake threats and then lure victims, and it can end like this. He had also called certain attorneys earlier in the night to say he would fax over documents, but they never arrived, obviously, because he was doing this long drive. But... That kind of seems like future planning. Like, he was planning to work on this case. He was planning to get these documents over. Might not be a big instance of future planning, but it still doesn't seem like someone who would commit suicide. The pool of blood in the backseat would suggest that Luna was in the back and someone else was driving. I don't know how big this pool of blood is because there's not, like, specific information on this case. But... This does make sense. For there to be a pool of blood in the back, Luna had to have been back there for an, a solid amount of time to, like, get the blood there, you know? And maybe he was there once they got to that area, but it kind of doesn't seem like enough time in between him getting there and the people seeing his car. So another thing a lot of people mentioned with the suicide aspect, no one's really, there's no cases of known suicide by stabbing. And if you are doing that, you're definitely not going to want to go through stabbing yourself 36 times. Also, if you're wanting to commit suicide, it just, I don't know, because the stab wounds were not his cause of death, so they obviously... Like, they could have been if he bled out, but they didn't hit anything. If he wanted to commit suicide, he's an intelligent person. I figure he would research it a little and know, like, where to hit in order to do so. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking too much into it, but I don't see anyone committing suicide by stabbing themselves 36 times giving themselves a head injury, and then drowning themselves. That just seems like a lot. So today at 9, well yesterday I guess when you guys are listening to this, at 9.35 a.m. there was 
the Baltimore Sun published a article and it's titled Mysterious Death of Baltimore Prosecutor Jonathan Luna Gets Renewed Attention After Coroner's Records Found. So the coroner's records were closed. No one really knows what the autopsy says besides the people who were working on the case. And people are trying to get them to open it up because the debate of suicide versus homicide is very prevalent. So maybe we will see some resolution in this case or at least a little more information soon. Well, that is all for this episode. I'm sorry, I'm still trying to work up to doing an hour for each episode and it, I tend to like talk fast and go through things kind of quickly. So it's taking me a little bit, but we got a little longer than last week, so we're doing good still. Once again, follow us on Twitter at Great Unsolved and on Instagram at The Great Unsolved. If you haven't already, we did start posting on Sprecher as well. So we are now on Apple, Sprecher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, CastBox, Deezer, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Breaker, and uh, there was like two more. I don't know. We're pretty much wherever you find your podcast, so be sure to subscribe to us and listen to our cases because really I'm just trying to promote justice for victims of unsolved cases. And I think the main way for that to happen is media attention. If you are on Twitter, you probably just saw that, oh gosh, what's the name? Christian Andriccio. I know I probably butchered that last name, but a lot of people know who this is. He was killed at 21, and recently there was 100,000 signatures for the We the People petition, which will hopefully get people to look at his case more, and that's awesome. But I'm just saying this so that people know that, like, Twitter and the true crime community and everything really does make a difference. We're not here to get money. We're not here to get fame out of anything. I mean, money's always helpful. And there's a lot of us who do make, like, a little bit of money off our podcast. Not much at all, I promise. But it's not the sole purpose. We are here to advocate for victims and help share people's stories because everybody wants their families or friends' cases to be solved. Anyways, now that I got deep into that, be sure to go follow us and we'll see you next week at Wednesday for a whole new case that is hopefully longer. So, how does it feel when you play Roll Up to Win with Tim Hortons? Buy a hot or cold beverage using the Tim's app and find out. Roll in the app for a chance to win prizes ranging from free coffee and donuts to a Universal Orlando resort vacation or a sweet car. Oh, don't forget the TV. And this year, every roll is a shot at a $1,000 daily giveaway drawing for two $500 prizes. Roll up to win and get treated by Tim's. No purchase necessary. Account registration required. 50 U.S. and D.C. 18 plus enter by 4223. See rules at rolluptowin.com for free entry of full details. Void in Florida and where prohibited.